I hope that most people in the room this morning, at least all those who are from Tennessee, um, I hope you know who I'm talking about when I mention the name Sergeant Alvin York. Do you know that name? Have you heard that name before? A few of you. Uh, he was a Tennessean born and bred in Fentress County. It's about six counties away from us. Um, he was drafted in the First World War to work through his... Um, he was called to be in the army, um, and, and because of that, he had to work through some of the convictions that he had as a Christian to, to do no harm, to not hurt anybody, um, but he also had to battle this idea of, of a patriotic responsibility and fighting for his country. It's a great story. For those of you who are unfamiliar with him, obviously my introducing him as Sergeant Alvin York, it gives away the fact that he ultimately did respond to his nation's call and he joined the U.S. Army in 1917 and he was promptly sent over to France to fight. And due to his common sense and backcountry wilderness experience, York became one of the Great War's most decorated heroes. I've read a biography of his, and it's compelling. Actually, it was his, his autobiography. But my first introduction into his story was the 1941 film in which Gary Cooper played Alvin York. Show of hands. How many of you have seen that movie? All right, that's good. That does my heart good because I was worried. I thought, man, here we got a bunch of guys that are graduated high school, and I'm talking about a movie that came out in 1941. This is not going to land well. Uh, some of you know it. Uh, you, ha- you might remember that story. Hollywood does what... Hollywood does, they take some pretty major creative license with his early life, and they focus on his carefree, rowdy life before he was drafted, but then things get serious in the movie, when one night in a downpour and a thunderstorm, almost, it almost pushes him inside this little country church, whereupon the preacher, seeing him enter, directs the congregation in singing, give me that old-time religion. You know that song? Give me that old-time religion. Nine verses later into the song, Gary Cooper, I mean Alvin York, was down on his knees shaking the hand of the preacher, which I guess is Hollywood's you know, reflection of saying that he gave his life to Christ. I, I don't know what really that is, but you know the song, Give Me That Old-Time Religion. I remember when I was a kid watching that movie for the very first time, that scene bothered me. If you don't know anything about Corey Minner as a kid, and probably even today as a 36-year-old, he's pretty pharisaical, um, pretty, pretty self-righteous. And I felt so mad that the entirety of York's serious battle and well-thought-out surrender and conversion to Christ was just kind of tailored down to fewer than two minutes of, give me that old-time religion, it was good for your father, it's good enough for you, and shake my hand and now you're a Christian kind of thing. I thought, man, his story's so much better than that, but... I shouldn't expect Hollywood to to really give an accurate representation of what it means to come to Christ. I don't know if it was then when my dislike for the word religion began, but I think it probably had a lot to do with that. If you add to that some of my formative years in the 90s and early 2000s when the word religion was pretty much a cuss word in the American church my aversion to, to ever actually using it seriously was sealed. In so many ways, we have opted to erase the word religion and all of its deriv- derivatives, religious or religiosity, from our Christian conscience. Choosing to focus on relationship rather than religion. I'm sure you've heard those, that, 
diametrically opposed two phrases, religion or relationship. In fact, if you're incredibly bored this incredibly bored this week, and some of you may be, you could dip into the archive of sermons that we have here at New Hope Church on our website, and you could probably find a sermon or two or ten where I make that dichotomy between religion and relationship. I do think that overall, we need to hear the message of Scripture in having and fostering a relationship with God. He is a personal being who desires to be ours, and desires us to be His. But in recent months, I've been convicted with trying to wash away certain words which the Bible itself uses to describe the Christian life. So let me just for a second kind of defend the word religion. I remember having a conversation with a dear friend obviously being used by God who is pushing for the, for the title or for the word Christian to even be removed and left in the dust. He said something to the effect of that word just means being nice or being a good citizen in our culture. We should be called disciples or followers of Jesus. Everybody's a Christian, which means nobody's a Christian, is what he said. I understand his frustration. And he's right for the most part. The title Christian no longer means what it first meant in Antioch. And Acts 11.26 meant as a slight against the early believers of Jesus, calling them little Christs and, oh, look at you, special people. It is very different from that so many years ago. But if Scripture uses the title, I think we ought to be very careful to throw it out or to not throw it out. And it's the same with the word religion. You tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe the word religion has a negative connotation today. Would you agree with me? You can nod. You don't have to like stand up and testify to that. At best, when people hear religion, people think like detached rites and rituals supposed to foster the attention of a deity and impress a God with our dedication to him, almost going through the motions. If I do enough, then God will be pleased with me. That's the best that some people see religion being. At worst, people imagine an oppressive set of dictatorial rules which govern and suppress all joy in life. They see religion as do this plus don't do that equals then God will love you. And both of those are sad misunderstandings of what the word religion means. And because of those two incorrect but very popular ideas, about what the word religion is, some would say, throw it out. Don't even use this word. And maybe sometime in the future, that might need to be a discussion when the culture so pre-opts it and changes it to something that it's totally not. But for now, I'm going to opt for trying to explain the biblical usage of the word religion this morning in a hope that every single one of us will not just have a good definition of what's meant by religion, but so that we will actually live what we are called to be. If it was good enough for James, I guess it's good enough for me. James 1, 26-27, this is actually the only time in all of the Bible that the word religion or religious is used in reference to Christianity. Hear me on that. It's used other times in the New Testament, but it's the only time that a A writer of Scripture uses it to describe the Christian life. 
The only other time the word pops up is when Paul is describing how devout some Jews were in following the Judaistic laws and the practices in Acts chapter 26. Paul uses it in reference to a a cult of angel worshipers. He calls them uh, very religious in in Colossians chapter 2. In fact, Greek scholars tell us that this word really wasn't used a whole lot in the ancient world. We have only one other passage of ancient text to compare it to, and that's from Herodotus in 450 BC when he uses the word religion to describe a sect of Egyptian diligent worshipers of gods. They would bathe in cold water twice a day. They wouldn't eat fish. They shaved their entire body every day. Uh, they never ate beans. But he, he says all of that and says this is how religious they were. Almost how strict they were in their belief. So it's easy to see how anyone could hear the word religion and think it's just a bunch of rules. Do this. Don't do that. But, in its most base form. The Greek word that James here is relaying to us, religion, threskos, it means to be troubled or stirred within so that you cry aloud. To be troubled or stirred within to the point that you cry aloud. Now that's helpful to me. And I hope it is to you because it shows that when James is talking about religion under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He is pointing out that religion is first an inward issue that then comes out. That the Lord is stirring inside of you, and because of the stirring, it has to come out in certain ways. In fact, if we were to just read the context of James chapter 1, even with that definition that I just gave you, James makes that exact same argument. Look at verse 26 again. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Essentially, if the inside doesn't match the outside and vice versa, the outside doesn't match the inside, you've got a useless cry of your life that you're living by. You feel stirred, but nothing changes. Or you do outward show, but you're never stirred. And the litmus test that James gives us in this particular instance is words and actions. This is how to tell if your religion is pure and undefiled. He goes to two categories, through your words and through your actions. In verse 26, James is making the case That if you go by all the strictest laws that any religion could ever put on you, circumcision, dietary laws, fasting, poverty, for instance, but if you still spew filth and anger at anyone who crosses you, it's all pointless. Not true. It's useless. And he uses the word, bridle your tongue. If anyone thinks he is religious and cannot or does not bridle his tongue. That's an expressive phrase, isn't it? Bridle your tongue. Put a bit in it is essentially what James is saying. Control that thing. Did anyone else fall under intense conviction as we read James 1.19 during our Scripture reading earlier when James says for us to be Every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow 
to wrath. I know the week that Corey has had, and I don't think it aligns very well with verse 19. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Put a bit in your mouth. Usually whenever I go to get a haircut, the TV in the barbershop is on ESPN or one of its like thousand iterations. There's like ESPN 400 now. Um, Rarely is there ever a game or a race or anything on. Usually, because it's daytime ESPN, it's just talking heads, hotly debating, yelling, screaming at each other over some draft or some weekend game that's coming up, or who's the GOAT? Is it LeBron, or is it Kobe, or is it Michael? Y'all know exactly who I'm talking about. Skip, Stephen A., and Shannon, these guys, they are passionate about whatever they're talking about, and it doesn't matter. That's the thing that blows my mind. Their opinions on the game that's coming up this weekend, it will not change the outcome one iota. But you could not convince them otherwise. Their bestowing of goatship upon one of these individuals in sports today, it doesn't do a lick of good. But they are there every day shouting at each other, and we watch them. Some of us, like, if you move, you're going to get your hair chopped off really bad, so you have to, it's a captive audience situation kind of thing. But some of us, we watch it because we enjoy it. The yelling at each other, going back and forth. Well, whenever I get out of the barber chair to pay, I just think, please, Lord, let me never get like that. And then immediately, <laughs> multiple times this has happened. You dummy, you are like that. Not over sports, But you have somebody ask me about a particular practice in the church, maybe some theological trend that I find erroneous or some certain politic that's happening, and bam, Skip's got nothing on me. I will hold my own. I won't listen. I will spew and talk as long as I possibly can. Swift to hear. Slow to speak. In the kids' notes this morning, I've got the phrase that you've probably heard before, that God gave you two ears and one mouth. How many of your parents told you that? Multiple times, because you didn't hear it the first time. God gave you two ears and one mouth so that you will listen as twice as much as you talk. Swift to hear, slow to speak. That's what James is referencing here when he cautions us to bridle our tongue. He's saying restrain it, control it. You can have an opinion on everything, but you don't need to always voice that opinion. We never learn anything when we are talking. I've heard that multiple times in my life. I've heard and read it all throughout the week, how true it is. But what James is specifically getting at is not just this Shaming of oversharing. He's focusing in on language not matching our religious practices. And again, I say, ouch. What if an accounting ledger of every word that we said or we typed was kept? What if, like in Daniel 5 and 6 that we read this morning in our D6 Sunday school classes, what if somebody followed behind us to check and make sure and see if we were ever doing anything wrong or against the law, 
and they would report on us, what if somebody shadowed us for a day? Particularly in reference to what we spoke or what we typed. How much gossip, how much boasting, how much rage, how much cursing, how much corrupt communication, how much lying to make ourselves look just an inch better in someone's eyes, how much of that stuff would be on the bottom line of the ledger? I think James keys in on our language in the text because it's the thing that betrays us most. And James gets to the heart of such empty religion. He says that it's self-deceiving and useless. If you do all of these outward shows of rituals and rites, but you can't even control your own tongue, he says it's useless and self-deceiving. Now hear me on this point because I don't want to mince words and I don't want you to misunderstand me. Hear me, please. Very often, attending church, singing hymns, praying prayers, taking the Lord's Supper, even washing the saints' feet, it can be just as dangerous as any sinful activity that you could do on the weekend. Let me say it again. Going to church, singing hymns, Praying prayers, taking the Lord's Supper, even washing the saints' feet is just as dangerous as any sinful activity that you could do on the weekend otherwise. Why? Because if all of those externals, things that you do, don't match your heart's desire, your internals, then all that you are doing is deceiving you. Making you think, well, I went to church, so I'm okay. Well, I took the Lord's Supper, so I'm okay. Or I felt something stir inside of me when we sang that hymn. But I went and did something totally different when I left. All those external things can be just as dangerous if there's a lapse of what's on the inside. That's what causes one person to say in an interview, I'm not sure that I have ever asked for forgiveness in my life. When I drink my little wine and have my little cracker, I guess that it's a form of asking for forgiveness, and I do that as often as I possibly can because I feel cleansed afterwards. That, brothers and sisters, is a dangerous form of religion that has lulled its participant into an outward show of mere ritual that makes them feel better. I know exactly how it is. I sat in our church so much in my lifetime before I began preaching. I would feel so good about myself leaving, going to the parking lot because I did something that was external, but I knew inside. Dead men's bones. And that's the danger of empty religion. It lulls us to sleep. It it self-deceives us. If we're not aware of it, we can easily fall into the trap of just going to church because it makes us feel better afterwards. There's an author and a preacher named Mark Dever, and he once wrote, your sin has a vested interest in your not listening to God's Word. Your sin 
has a vested interest in your not listening to God's Word. So sin will use anything, even empty religious acts, to make you feel clean and safe when you aren't. So James says of this kind of religion, he says, it's useless. It's got nothing for you. This outward show of all of this stuff, it is useless. And as I studied this week, I wanted so badly for that word, useless, to pack a punch. What's it mean in the original language? So I did word study after word study. And you know what I found out? That useless means useless. (laughs) Devoid of force, one commentator said. Lacking results. No purpose. Useless. It's the best word here. All of that stuff that you do, if there is no internal stirring or moving or troubling of God in your life that then comes out, if it's just external, useless. So the word doesn't go into a whole lot of a huge description here. So I look for an illustration. In 1510, a man by the name of Martin Luther was a monk. He was sent by his bishop to visit Rome and advance in the Roman Catholic Church. And while there, he decided to make as much of his time as he possibly could, so he spent hours in a small fortune gazing at relics, practicing religious rituals that were believed to give spiritual efficacy. They would give grace. They would exude grace is what he was taught, that he could gain grace by looking at these things. And one of those practices was to ascend the Scala Scanta. Some of you have been there say, Corey, you just butchered whatever that is. That's fine. The Scala Sancta. Supposedly, these were steps that Jesus walked up to to get to Pilate when he was to be put on trial. History, or really historical tradition, tells us that Helena had them removed from Jerusalem and then taken to Rome. And so the Roman Catholic Church in that time in 1510, they used to tell people that they could win people or their own own future selves out of purgatory by kneeling at each of the 26 steps and praying. And so Luther did. He paid an entrance fee, and then at every step, 26, he would step up and fall to his knees. Step up and fall to his knees, recounting over and over again, probably hundreds of times, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Upon reaching the top, Luther would later write, Who knows whether any of this is true? That's what I mean by useless. That's what James means by useless. That every act, every external act that you do without the actual moving of the Spirit inside you, every good thing that might be deemed as good by other people, it's useless. You get to the top, you look at your life, you look at all the good things that you did, and you found that it's useless. Without force, lacking results. At best, 
Empty religion has you feeling as though it were useless as kneeling on special stairs, at worst and more dangerous than anything else. There is empty religion that leaves you self-deceived, feeling as though your works have done something for you because you've done enough. God sees all the things that you've done and will just kind of nod and wink at you and let you on in. At worst, that's what empty religion does. And you say, Corey, I thought you were trying to make a case for the word religion here. If it's so bad, if it's so far gone, let's scrap it. Here's the fact of the matter. If we just deleted the word from our vocabulary, it still would not change the heart issue that we all face. Because there is such a thing in verse 27 as pure an undefiled religion before God and the Father. It's this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If our personal religious practices and our very religion itself does not look like verse 27, hear me on this. If your life with Jesus, does not look like verse 27. Useless religion. We're lying to ourselves. And we're living in useless religion. Again, go back to that, that root meaning of religion. To be so troubled or stirred within that you cry aloud. That you have this inward thing that happens to you and then it it must express itself into outward actions and outward cries. We're talking about the inner working of God here that leads to outward expression. So God so stirs our lives or even troubles us that the natural or divine overflow is that we react similarly to others in verse 27. And notice this first, this first part of religion, pure, undefiled religion, it is before God and the Father. Probably a better translation of this would be, instead of before God, might be in the sight of God. So this is true religion that God looks on with agreement. He sees what is being done. He sees it being done from an overflow of a heart that's longing to be His and, and do what He wants us to do. And He sees it with agreement. Isn't that what matters? What does God say about you. Look, I'll just be real with you for a second. Hopefully I'm real with you the entire sermon, but for real right now, I want you to like me. I want you to love me. I want you to give me grace. And when I mess up and I have messed up royally, I want you to forgive me. I want you to love me. And there is this fear in or there's this problem in every single one of our lives called the fear of man. That we will do things, say things, or not do things and not say things because we want people to like us. Do you feel that? I do. It's real in, in this guy's heart. Your opinion of me does not matter compared to God's opinion. Of me. I want you to hear that well. The only opinion that matters 
is God's opinion. So in looking at religion in our lives, it doesn't matter if your wife says, you're such a good Christian. It doesn't matter if your children say, you're such a good daddy. It doesn't matter if your coworkers look at you and say, he's one of the best men I've ever known in my life. It matters not what other people say. It matters what God says about you. Pure and undefiled religion before God or in the sight of God is this. How does God see your religion? He knows you better than you know you. That's why the psalmist said, Lord, search me and and know my thoughts. Try me and, and know my way. See if there's any evil, wicked way in me. David doesn't even trust his own opinion of himself. Lord, you do, the, you do the work. I can't. Jesus knew the difference. He saw the sincerity in the criminal on the cross. And he saw the self-righteousness in the rich young ruler. Only God can see that. Because from the outside looking in, one was getting what he rightly deserved. He deserved to die on the cross. And the other... He was a pillar of the community. And yet Jesus accepts one and the other walks away sorrowfully. One's accepted and one turns away. So how does God view your religion? How does He see your attendance in church today? I told you, let's just get real. Are you here because, well, it's Sunday and this is what I usually do on Sunday. Or is it, Lord, I need to be with your people to serve and sing and hear the Word of God? How does God see your Bible reading or your prayer life? Is it obligatory or is it relationship building with God? Are you doing it because i got to do this because this is what a good Christian does and because this is what tradition, this is what religious, this is what you do? Or is it because, God, I want to know you more. I want to be in your Word and I want to speak to you as face-to-face as you did with the saints of old. What, how does God see your religion? Go down the line in your life. Don't just stop at church attendance and Bible reading. I mean, everything that you do, every good deed, every gracious act that you do, Was it done for sinful and selfish ambition or was it done to promote Christ in His kingdom? Was it done out of obligation or was it done out of I want to serve because He has served me so well? How does God view that religious act? Is it pure? Is it undefiled? Or is it tainted? Is it easily insincere? And there's two markers that the Holy Spirit gives us in the text through James which helps us to not be self-deceived by our fake religion. You ready for them? Number one, pure and undefiled religion is seen in how we bless others who cannot bless us back. I'll say it again. Pure and undefiled religion is seen in how we bless others who cannot bless us back. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Now for me, to better understand this text, I have to kind of put it up in contrast against verse 26. Verse 26 is fake religion or false religion or empty religion or useless religion. Verse 27 is pure, undefiled religion. 
So fake religion in verse 26 is a lot of talk, self-centeredness, self-aggrandizing talk, but pure religion in verse 27 that God looks upon with delight is selfless serving of the overlooked. And James lists two groups of people who lived on the very margins of society in the first century world. He names them the orphaned and the widowed. Now today, in our culture, thankfully, how you treat the orphaned and the widow is seen as noble, benevolent, a good thing to do, but it has not always been so. This was a world without orphanages. There was no social welfare security net. This was a time of seeing helping others as beneath your status or as weakness. One author wrote this, 300 years before the birth of Christ, Plato said that a poor man who was no longer able to work because of sickness should be left alone to die. 150 years later, the Roman philosopher Plautus argued that to feed a beggar was doing a disservice to yourself for giving it away and the beggar whose life you merely prolonged more misery. That was leading up to Jesus. But something changed. 300 years after Christ, we have this record. In the city of Alexandria, it was hit by a plague. The Romans fled from the contagious disease, but the Christians remained risking their own lives to take care of the sick. To take care of the sick. And Julian the Apostate, he was called, the Roman Emperor, he called Christians Galileans as some slight against Jesus to scorn them for their belief in Jesus. He complained, he wrote this, these impious Galileans receive both their own poor and ours. Something changed. 300 years before Christ, Plato, 150 years before Jesus, Plautus, they both made the case that those who could not keep up with society should be left behind or killed. 300 years after Christ, the Roman ruler of the day was saying, I don't get these Christians. They're staying where there's infected people and they're risking their own lives. They are impious. How disgusting are they? Something changed. And it would be Jesus. We would do well to really understand what it means to visit the widow and the orphan in their distress. Hear me on this. This is not just throw money at them. Although providing and helping them is certainly a huge part of it. This is taking care of the physical and emotional and spiritual needs of those who are left without a main protector. Visiting them. Being with them physically. This week, I was thrilled to hear through the grapevine. You know, when you hear things through the grapevine, it's usually not good. But through the grapevine, I heard about how some of you were meeting up with some of our godly, saintly widows. Praise God for that. This week, I was reminded of the number, quite a few of you actually, who have adopted and you are fostering even now. There is no clearer expression of God adopting us than us ministering to the orphaned. 
There's no clearer expression of God's provision for us than ministering to the brokenhearted like the widowed. The fake religionists will leave this place this morning and think, okay, all right, so I gotta visit some people this week. I gotta go by the orphanage and I gotta go see some widows this week. And that in and of itself shows you don't get it. Pure religion, true believers will make this act of serving anyone and everyone, especially those who cannot return the gift. You'll make it a way of life. Jesus was speaking to his disciples about this in Luke 14, and he warned his, heroes, his hearers in verse 12. He also said to them who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, again, let's let the conviction set in here. At your Thanksgiving table, Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Christianity is not a religion of favors and repayment. It's all about grace. Don't miss that. We give to others, especially those without the wherewithal to repay us back because God gives to us freely. And we can't pay Him back. So pure and undefiled religion is first seen in how we bless others who cannot bless us back. And secondly, pure and undefiled religion is seen in how we obey God's call to holiness. Look again at verse 27 with me. We'll edit out that one phrase that we just talked about, but pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, the very last part of, this, of the verse, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Again, contrast verse 26 and 27. In verse 26, we have someone who thinks he's religious. If any of you thinks he is religious, but he can't bridle his own tongue. Here in verse 27, there's no doing for religious sake so that others will think you better or even more, or even to soothe your own conscience. This, all of life, it's an act of worship. Every time we shun sinful temptation and every time we cling to Christ, you know what we are saying, Christian? We are saying Jesus is better. I obey because I love Him. And this takes us back to one of James' main themes in the letter. That the inside better match the outside. You look at the Pharisees of the New Testament. You will not find a more clean and disciplined sect in all of history. There are some sects of Phariseeism that refused even to use the restroom on the Sabbath day because it would defile the day. You do not get more committed than them. You look at the Pharisees of the New Testament, careful to stay clean, remain washed, eat only prescribed diet, and you contrast that with their actions. 
where they constantly and consistently divorced their wives, where they would ultimately murder Jesus. The outside, what Jesus called was whitewashed, and the inside was dead men's bones. You're just a coffin. You're just a suit. Now look at the Christian. The danger is that some see their forgiveness of sins clean inside and it might give them some license to think that they can just go on sinning. That what I do on the outside doesn't matter. And Paul says, and I agree with him, God forbid. James ends this thought. He's going to move on in chapter 2 to some more practical outworkings of what it means. But he says, keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's a tall order. Do you agree? To keep yourself unspotted from the world. Spots and stains are every single where you turn today. You grab your phone, turn on the phone, turn on the TV, bam. Every single temptation, every single place. But mere obedience to Christ, that's what he calls us to. And he doesn't leave it to ourselves. Jesus himself, turning your Bibles to John 14 this morning. I know I've been rambling. I apologize. John 14. This is where the rubber meets the road. But the outside better match the inside. How do I remain spotless in this world? Jesus is looking at his disciples, and in verse 15 of John 14, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Christian, one of the last things that Jesus prayed for on this earth in the Garden of Gethsemane was for another to come and help you Remain spotless in this world. This is, this is what we're called to do. The pure and undefiled religion. To visit orphans and widows. To meet their needs. To minister to those who cannot return the favor. And then to remain spotless in this world. To do what He says to obey. I'll just end by saying this. The world is desperate we are desperately in need of religion. Not old-time religion that was good enough for your father. Not old-time religion that was good enough for Daniel that was, that was seen through the fiery trials or whatever, however that verse goes. The world is longing not for rites and rituals, but for real, pure, undefiled, genuine, outflowing of what God has done within, it must come out in religion.
Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.